I mean, like, am I allowed to talk about how hot I think Malcolm X is? Mm-hmm, sure. He looks good in a suit. That was his thing, those suits. Yeah. The bow ties. <laughs> oh, my God. He did wear bow ties. Yeah. In my imagining, they were like the long skinny ties. But no, you're right. That was the whole vibe. Yeah. The bow ties. <laughs> Julian Pensavale. Patrick Hines. Ba-na-na. Oh, we're singing on the Sam Cooke episode. <laughs> Sorry, Sam. <laughs> Before we get to the episode, you guys, we just had Maggie Freeling in the office. She's her, right here. I know. Look for her Patreon interview coming out very soon. Yeah. She's so teeny tiny. Me or Maggie? Both of you. Thank Maggie you. comes in at a close second. Maggie was here talking all about our upcoming live show. We've got two left this year. We've got one in Toronto for Just for Laughs in September. we got one in Brooklyn talking with Maggie and Lancey and Timmy about mm-hmm. the Maura Murray case in yeah. October. That show is gonna be crazy. Yeah, we just did a half a run through with Maggie, it seemed like. <laughs> And it's, oh, it's going to get real crazy real quick. It's going to go off the rails almost immediately. I'm, I'm sure of it. I was saying to Maggie, you understand that our format is like two thirds. We're going to talk about the case and really dive deep and take questions and really get some answers. And at least one third, we're just going to make fucking fun of you and the boys. And she was like, please. Yeah. <laughs> roast Let's me. Let's do this. <laughs> you guys, Patreon is really heating up. At the $5 level, you guys, you get over 90 full bonus episodes. Casey Anthony, Lorena, The Disappearance of Madeline McCann, The Staircase Serial. The Jinx. Did you say The Jinx? The Jinx, Making a Murderer. murderer. Patreon.com slash true obsessed or go to the website click on the link yeah join us in the pates you guys thanks yeah the pates <laughs> is back we gotta get to this talk about Sam Cooke I know I'm very I really enjoyed this one I thought this was an excellent documentary alright let's do it okay Look, all I gotta say is my wealth of knowledge of music really starts and stops with the Indigo Girls and Paula Cole. I was thinking, (laughs) wow, how much did Patrick learn during this? I learned so much. The whole first five minutes, I was just like, damn, damn, this music is fantastic. Did you like not know who Sam Cooke was? Zero, zero percent. Are you serious? Yes. Did you grow up with this music? Yeah. My parents have excellent taste in music. Did you know about the mystery of his death? Sort of. I knew that it was suspicious and tragic, but I didn't know what I learned today. There are some characters that get involved in his death. Oh, (laughs) look. They come with their own props and costumes, wardrobe, the whole thing. But like, you know, change is going to come. You send me having a party. Like, Sam Cooke. I know. Sam freaking Cook. All right, let's play this trailer. We're going to get into it. All right. Sam is the father of modern soul music. He broke through a lot of color barriers and wasn't afraid to be the first. He was a racial hero as much as he was a musical hero. Record companies really wanted him to be an entertainer and nothing more. And that was never going to be enough for Sam Cook. Now, ladies and gentlemen, Sam Cook. He was a complicated black man in a complicated world. Sam was taking a big risk by saying, I don't want to play in a segregated space. Clan members down there had a problem with that. Suddenly there are threats suggesting you should not go up on that stage. He was threatening. There was a sense in the music industry that Sam was getting too powerful. Who would want to shoot Sam Cooke? There are a lot of people who believe that there was some sort of cover-up. People deeply felt that the FBI was somehow involved. When I found out Sam Cooke, Muhammad Ali, and Malcolm X were all connected, I said, what a huge threat to America. Looking at these men, Sam Cooke might be the most dangerous to you because he's already in white American liberals. This very mysterious death, what happened, and why was he there, and who was this woman, and all those become bigger questions then what was he on the edge of achieving? 
this documentary is just so well done. It's so good. Because it starts in this way where it's just all of our talking heads, all of our narrators here. They're not just listening to Sam Cooke, but they're like feeling this song. Sam had that magic voice. I want to tell you that, darling, you, oh, you sent me. Sam is the father of modern soul music. Absolutely. They all have that, like, listening to music face. Yeah, because they're all, like, <laughs> musicians or friends of his. Uh-huh. And, like, whenever his voice was anywhere, like, there was so much feeling in it. You didn't know it, but you were making that face, too, when you were watching it. 100%. You know? And these people that we're talking to, it's like Quincy Jones. Smokey and Robinson. Smokey Robinson and Dionne Warwick. Yeah. Like, it's all these badass. And then there's these really smart talking heads who are, like, putting it all in context for us. Mm-hmm. But it starts with them listening to Sam Cooke's music. Right. And their eyes are closed. Yeah, sometimes they're singing or I mouthing know. along. And they're just like, oh, And that's when I was like, listen, I grew up with the Lilith Fair soundtrack, Mm -hmm. which was also very good. Mm -hmm. But it was very nice to have my horizons brought in. Welcome. You you. can like all types of music here, (laughs) here as in the world. (laughs) So the thing is, it's not a very long documentary. But right at the top, it's one of those where we get like, here's everything that happened in two minutes. Mm -hmm. And we learn that Sam Cooke was like not just a musician. He was not afraid to break down barriers. And he was really political. Yeah. And they say like the FBI had to find a way to kill him. He broke through a lot of color barriers and wasn't afraid to be the first. Empowerment. This is what drove him to talk with Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali. He was so unafraid. If you're afraid, you couldn't be hanging out with Malcolm because the FBI might find a way to get rid of you. These were the early stages of black power. That black male energy that Sam Cooke possessed, unfortunately for some people in power in his country, represented a threat that had to be stopped. He was so famous. So when he died, people are saying like, look, if this was Frank Sinatra or whatever, the FBI would have investigated this death. Uh Why didn't they look into this super famous? If it was one of the Beatles, like that's the tier. It's important for you guys to know right from the top. Sam Cooke was super famous. This one guy says like his death was also just the most improbable death. And I'm just screaming, tell me everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is so improbable about his death? They're like that woman. And then we see a picture. I know. They're like, why was she there? And I was like, why was she there? I know. You guys, when we get to it, I'm telling you, it really is fucking bonkers. It's insane. Yeah. It's insane. Look, we learned that Sam Cooke was found shot to death naked in a motel. None of that makes sense, even now. Right. I could have just passed up. Who would want to shoot Sam Cooke? I guess what I asked myself. I was sad and confused back then, and most, you know, other people, especially in the black community, but not only, were sad and confused. And well, what happened? So then it cuts to like 1964 and we see this footage of him on the Mike Douglas show. Yeah, and it's so cool. God, this movie's so well done. Yeah. But we hear about Sam Cooke's childhood from Sam Cooke. Right. Let's do a little capsule version of the Sam Cooke story. How did it all happen? A little capsule version. Uh, born, my father was a minister. Uh, I started singing in the church naturally because I was exposed to a gospel singing first line. And he starts telling us his dad was a minister, Sam started as a gospel singer, and we learn that he was born in Mississippi in 1931. So here's the thing about being born in Mississippi in 1931. Slavery was still super close in people's minds. It wasn't that long ago today. I actually really want to like think about that for a second. Uh-huh. That being born in 1931 means his grandmother was a slave. I know. He knew people who were slaves. Right. When uh, they said that, I was like, oh my God. Right. It's unbelievable. And add that to 30s and 40s in the South. Right. Black people are being lynched. The KKK. God damn it. (laughs) 
fuck the KKK. You can quote me. You can quote me on that. How do we not have a t-shirt that says the KKK dot dot dot? God damn God it. God damn it. God. So his minister dad, he was like, screw this. We're going to Chicago. <laughs> Making a better life for his kids. It's true. And they get to Chicago and he starts to like make a name for himself as a gospel singer. I met Sam at a concert in Gary, Indiana. I was about 16 years old. And Sam would had to be around 13 or 14. I went up and I said, hey, man, you were something else. But I said, I ain't never heard nothing like this before in my life. He's like the minister's kid, but he's like really fucking good. Yeah, and the band's name, I love this, The Soul Stirs. Ooh, it's so good. <laughs> and I love those old like photos of bands like that back then because it's like they're all like just smiling at the camera. Huddled around one mic. It's the best. <laughs> and so everyone kind of knew like, who's this 13-year-old kid with the killer voice? Yeah. And this all happens pretty quickly in terms of Sam Cooke's rise to fame with The Soul Stirs. Yeah. Because the ladies all had crushes on him. <laughs> One in particular, Ms. Dion Warwick. Dion? Okay. <laughs> I believe it's Abyssinia Baptist Church in Newark, where soul sirs were a part of the program. I thought he was the cutest thing in the world. I mean, I was 11 years old and madly in love. <laughs> so here's the thing where we have to actually take a pause, because you can't possibly know how much my husband loves Dion Warwick. Shut up. Does Steve, he really? do you know the way to send us a... No! I will tell you, Dionne Warwick, she's such a badass in this documentary. Just seeing Dionne Warwick in this movie felt like seeing an old friend. By the way, she looks fucking fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love how she's using this too because the story she tells is around just like she had such a crush on him. And the whole point was that they actually say they're like, there were women who had never even thought about going to church until, <laughs> you know, until Sam and the soul stories were there. And they would be around the block four deep, you know, because Sam was there. Holy shit, we got to get to church. <laughs> and we see we're late, the- we got to go. They describe the lines to get into the church as like four deep. Like, yeah, it's like the Beatles. Right. So many people were there to see Sam Cooke that yeah. it was like the women were just throwing themselves at a church. So by the time Sam Cooke is 19 and 20 years old, the Soulsters head down south to do a little bit of a tour. So they call this the Chitlin Circuit. Mm-hmm. Smokey Robinson tells us. Smokey, Smokey Robinson. <laughs> we called it the Chitlin Circuit because a lot of those places were like funky like that, you know, like funky like Chitlins. This was the time when we were on the last legs of vaudeville and on the beginnings of rock and roll. Smokey Robinson <laughs> Smokey is telling Robinson. us this I story. Know, I know. Because they were all there together. If it's you true. think about like the fame and the talent and the charisma. You that totally scene, want to say charisma, uniqueness, nerve, and talent. I know you do. I do. <laughs> But think of it. Smokey Robinson and Sam Cooke like coming up together in the tours in the South. Oh my God, I know. I know. Like, and Dion Warwick, I know. <laughs> this tour in the South was very eye-opening for Sam because he's lived in Chicago most of his life where certainly it's not easy, but the South, the segregation in the South is just so blatant. And they're also like, they can't find a place to stay. It's so well, segregated in the South. They can't stay in certain hotels or boarding houses. Quincy Jones tells us. We used to have to sleep in uh, mortuaries with six bodies there. I was sleeping in a cot, six bodies in caskets, you know. They would be in funeral homes and 
Dead bodies would be in the caskets oh and they God. would be on the floor. I've already said I am not a fan of corpses. I just don't understand how people can treat other humans this way. Like totally. that is just so infuriating. I know. Like uh. It's hard because Quincy Jones is telling us the story and he's laughing. You know what I mean? Because it's like so ridiculous and so long ago. But right. you're right. When you really reduce it to like, oh, wait. Oh, my God. Wait, that's a real story that really happened. Like some 19 year old kid. And it doesn't matter how old they were. Right. Someone's like, hey, we need a place to sleep. And they're like, well, the morgue is open. How can you even? say that to somebody it's ridiculous and so sam cook is like i don't like someone should do something about this i'm not we're not fans of this this sucks this is not how this should be i want to be part of that change so this is where we learn about emmett till we're a little black boy 14 years old who was also from chicago with roots in mississippi just like sam cook emmett till allegedly whistled at a white woman and he was beaten savagely in money mississippi and had a fan tied around his neck and was killed. And this is the moment where we see a photograph of what I believe is his dead body. It's, it is... It is it is utterly horrifying. I couldn't look at it. I couldn't either. The abuse that this body has suffered, it is horrifying to look at. It, yeah, it, it is. And it was it, on the front page of the newspaper. Yeah. We're seeing it from the newspaper. Right. As hard as it is to look at, it's just important to see and come to terms with. Like, this was the horror of what was happening. And this is where Sam Cooke is like, we are human beings. We are tax-paying Americans. Right. This cannot stand. Right. And and it's so interesting because he has the foresight to know that he's so talented that he's like a once in a generation voice that he's right. going to be famous. And to him, he was like, I don't know why I see hands raised in questions. Like, it's very clear. Uh-huh. I'm going to be famous. Uh-huh. Uh, have you heard my voice? Right. I'm an amazing singer. I'm an amazing songwriter because he wrote those uh-huh. songs. Right. I'm an amazing business person. And there's some shit here that has to change. I'm going to do it. Yeah. And just you watch me. Yeah. If you can, because tickets are sold out probably. Right. So I'm Sam Cook. So we get this whole section here about how like Sam Cooke was coming of age as a singer in the first real generation of rock and roll. Chuck Berry, Little Richard, these photos are so amazing. I know. And we learn about this song called Lottie Miss Claude. Lloyd Price. <laughs> so Lloyd Price meets Sam in 1953 at Specialty Records. They were celebrating Lottie Miss Claude because it was their first rock and roll record to ever sell a million copies. I had to rewind it because I was like, wait, was it the first one for that record label? It's like, no, that was the first album to sell a million copies. The first rock and roll record. So like, rock and roll's here, everybody. Right. Deal with it, parents. And so the whole thing about Sam, I have in my notes, Sam was a little bit of a partier because Sam would like to go out to these rock and roll clubs and stay out all night long and right. party with the girls mm-hmm. and roll in for his gospel singing gig the next morning and be fine. So he was like loving the rock and roll music to like enjoy and listen to, but was singing gospel music. Right. So Lloyd Price is like, I know how to do this rock and roll thing. Check those one million records. Right. <laughs> Here's the deal. Come on over to the rock and roll side because what you're doing with gospel is great, but yeah. those are rooms of 300. I'm playing rooms of 1700. Come over to rock and roll, girl. It's super fun. And Sam's like, actually, no, girl. Jesus says I'm not allowed to do that. Lloyd says, All of gospel singles back during that time didn't want to switch. You know, I guess it was because of the fear of Jesus. Sam was scared of Jesus. <laughs> we get Kevin Powell from the first season of The Real World like explaining he was like oh no like that's exactly what happened so here's the thing like the church tells us either you're going to sing God's music or the devil's music (laughs) and he's like well the devil's music is better but God scares me so well I want to sing God's music but this devil music has got me dancing and this devil music can actually make me famous I can do more things you know with my life so the thing is, Sam was like, okay, hold on a second. So he's like wrestling. He literally has like the angel and devil on his shoulder. Right. The devil music is like, I'm super fun. Right. 
You're really good at me. There you, I mean, you're really good at me. The girls love me <laughs> right, and you. Right. And because so many people love me, your voice can reach a bigger audience. You can make that change a little faster. But it was a risk because if he left gospel, he can right. never go back. I wonder if that's true. You know what I mean? For example, Jessica Simpson left a world of pop music to make her country album. And correct, we weren't so willing to take her back. Crickets. <laughs> Crickets. Crickets. Remember Ashley? I kind of love that song on a Monday. I used to no, do an impression no. of that. You want to hear it? Yes, please. All the pieces, pieces, pieces of me. People love it when you sing on this it's podcast. It's crazy. <laughs> So Sam Cooke tries to like dip his toe in the water of the, <laughs> the potential backlash and the devil music and I don't know. <laughs> so he takes this song about how, quote, wonderful God is. You guys, he takes a God song and makes it about a girl. And he makes it about how lovable this woman is. Yeah. But he's like, oh, no, that's not Sam Cooke. Uh, even though my perfect angelic voice, it's not Sam Cooke. No, it's Dale Cooke. New kid on the block. His name is Dale Cooke. He just sounds a little like me. And everyone was like, well, listen, man, that's, that's, that's got to be Sam. I don't know if anybody, I haven't heard anybody saying like that. I'm sorry, Sam. <laughs> Have you heard you? Your voice is amazing and no one can sing like you. So totally. this Dale person who just like came out of the clear blue sky does not exist and we all know it. Yeah. And so this is where he's like, okay, fine, you guys. I'm just going to go make the rock and roll. Right. And I'm just going to add an E to the end of Cook. Right. For a little, quote, Chicago flavor. Okay. <laughs> it's deep dish Sam Cook. Yeah, I'm into it. I'm into it. Mm. Oh my God, we see Dick Clark. Dick Clark. <laughs> Children, gather around. There used to be a show called American Bandstand. Oh my God. And basically Dick Clark told the kids what was cool and who to like and what <laughs> records to buy. You guys have seen Hairspray. You know what we're talking yes, about. Yes, yes, yes. Corny Collins, <laughs> it's right. It's Corny Collins, exactly. Right. So Dick Clark was like the man back what? then and was like, listen to this and dance to this record. Dick Clark has such an impact in terms of how young folks listen to American music. If you're Sam Cooke, you had to be on that show. So Dick Clark calls Sam Cooke. Right. Because American Bandstand used to tour. So it was like this behemoth even back in 1957. Yeah. American Bandstand was a big deal. Give it a gook. But it's a big deal that Dick Clark wants him to be on American Bandstand. It's truly revolutionary. And it was also this tour. So it was like this live show that Dick Clark wanted him to do. And it was down south. Yeah. And who has to come and ruin everybody's goddamn good time? Sam was about the only black, or I should say Negro, singer at the time on the show. And the clan, the clan members on there had a problem with that. The fucking KKK. Get the, I'm going to ruin this. Here's the moment where I really couldn't believe it. You know how when you think of the KKK, you think of them late at night in the field burning across. Going dur, 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 dur. <laughs> In their like robes and hoods so you can't see who they are. Mm -hmm. They are so brazen in this moment. They are on the sidewalk, broad daylight, in their robes, no hoods. Mm -hmm. People, white people, black people are just walking past them it's on the street because they're just so accepted. So now the KKK... Uh, they are threatening both Dick Clark and Sam Cooke. And everybody knew they were for real because they had just recently blown up what somebody refers to as a Jewish synagogue. Yes, we understand that the synagogue is Jewish. Right, right, right. And Dick Clark was like, yeah, but I'm going to have Sam Cooke on my show. I think Dick Clark gets a lot of room in this moment because we hear about him waffling about what should I do? I want to keep my audience safe. I want to keep Sam Cooke safe. I want to keep everybody safe. Should I do it? Should I not? He's like, fuck this. I'm having Sam Cooke on my show. Of course. And Sam Cooke's like, good, because I would be there anyway. Right. Like, let's go. Dick Clark calls the National Guard. Right. Not and having it. No. And one of our talking heads is like, Dick Clark did what a powerful white man would do. He called the National Guard to keep people safe from the KKK. But what Dick Clark didn't know 
that probably most black people in Atlanta knew was that you probably couldn't trust the National Guard either. I mean, that's how pervasive this was. The National Guard wasn't necessarily safe either. Right. He really had the best intentions. Right. And that's what he could do. And he was like, I'm a powerful guy. Like, I'm just going to call in a super powerful entity to help with this. It's just that everyone happened to suck all at the same time. Right. But the thing is, Sam Cooke goes out on stage anyway. What Sam Cooke would have said is that I'm a man. (laughs) And I'm a black man. And as a black man, I have a responsibility to go on this show and bring down whatever walls I can bring, whatever boundaries I can help dissipate by showing that I am talented, I am skilled, I can compete with the best of them. And in fact, there was an audience within white America that was very interested in having me see there. And he's fearless and it breaks boundaries and everything was fine because the KKK are a bunch of fucking cowards and I hate them. (laughs) So now we have this big moment. It's like cut to the jumpy music. Now we're in L.A. 1957. We're swinging, baby. Let's go. Life is good for Sam Cooke. It's true. So we find out that he's married his beautiful high school sweetheart. Barbara. They move to L.A. He performs at the Arthur Murray party, which was a TV show. Yeah. The Arthur Murray party. Start the evening off, we have invited a young singer who already has the most amazingly long list of hit recordings, and he deserves every one of them. It's Sam Cooke. So Arthur Murray and his wife, they were dancers. Uh-huh. And it was like this fancy pants variety show where they would like welcome you into their home uh-huh. and it would be like, oh, welcome to our cocktail party. <laughs> what, you like to have a cocktail or, or a deviled egg? Oh, who's performing now? <laughs> Why it's Sam Cooke. Why don't you and me have parties like this? Because it's a lot of work. I guess so, but a deviled egg sounds fucking great right now. <laughs> I'm so hungry. <laughs> so Sam Cooke is so big that he didn't have to go back down to the South anymore. He and- was playing all these like big time joints. He certainly had hit a point in his career where he could have just been playing the biggest nightclubs in New York and Los Angeles and Chicago. It would have been easy for him to not go back to the South. But I think it was important for him to constantly keep that connection for himself and for his audience, but also to keep his finger on the pulse of what was happening in the civil rights movement, which wasn't happening in the same way in the North or the West. Remember, when Sam had gone to the South the first time, he was sleeping in morgues and like couldn't like eat at this restaurant. He doesn't have to go back, but he's a revolutionary. He wants to create and affect change. And he also wants to be present for his audience. He's not going to ditch the people who made him who he is. Right. So he's going to go down and perform for the black community. So back to Queen Dionne Warwick. She's back. Steve, she's back. Are you happy? <laughs> this is where we see the picture of her. And I was like, oh I my know. God, what a foxy lady. I know. Her first tour was with Sam Cooke. Yeah. And she tells this story about... About how they were all super hungry one night. They were in South Carolina. South Carolina. They're on Sam's bus. And Sam's like, who wants to go to dinner? They go to a restaurant and they go to find a table. And they sit down and nobody nobody talks to them. Nobody comes over. So they flag down the waitress and she swears at them. You know, shut up, tells them to leave and just horrible, horrible treatment. So Dion Warwick's not having it. No. <laughs> so me and my big mouth, my silly, you know what you can do? Take that order and shove it. So they leave. They like storm out in a huff and they go back to the bus and the fucking cops get called. Like within 10 minutes, the cops are there. They just come on the bus. They're like, who are the gals who were mean to the waitress, to Bertha? Right. Who totally didn't deserve it. And Sam Cook's like, excuse you. We do not have gals on this bus. We have ladies and, and we have gentlemen. gentlemen. And this is my bus. And get off it. Right. And they did. They did because he's Sam Cook. And he's famous enough that these white cops actually do what they're told. Right. And so this is where we get into how Sam is not going to play segregated houses. He's just not going to do it. Yeah. We get so much audio of Sam Cook in interviews. Right. Which is so cool. Yeah. To hear it's him really tell incredible. these stories. So we get this interview from 1960 where he's like, I will never forget the day I was unable to. Fulfill a one night singing engagement in Georgia 
because I wouldn't sit in a Jim Crow bus and because no white taxi cab driver would take me from the airport to the city. And Negro cab drivers were not permitted to bring their cabs into the airport. Here's the thing. I wasn't going to take a Jim Crow bus. Uh-huh. I wasn't going to do that. And a Jim Crow bus meaning the blacks had to sit in the back. You know, like Rosa Parks shit. Right, right. He was yeah. like, I'm not going to do that. I'm right. not going to sit on that kind of bus. So he's like, I couldn't make it. Isn't that unreal? It's unreal. I know. Also, we learned that like in all these segregated venues, the white spectators paid one price and the quote general public paid a higher price. And Quincy Jones is like, it's sickening that they would just like literally sit up in the balcony and like watch the black people dance. The white people, yeah, their section was the balcony and they would just oogle the black people dancing on the main floor. It's horrible. It's unreal. It's so disgusting. So we learn about Jesse Belvin. Uh Uh-huh. In 1960, he plays the very first integrated show in Arkansas, which was the biggest deal. Right, and he's black. So after the show, it's a great show. Yeah. It's historical. He leaves and he and his wife and three of their friends die in a car wreck. A head-on collision, which people, at first they thought it was just an accident. No, but it turns out these stupid locals cut his goddamn tires and caused the wreck. Right. I mean, you guys, these people just wanted to play music. Right. It was very, very shocking, you know, because he had a great, great future ahead of them. Of course it was a message. So remember Emmett Till? It's right. Now, Emmett Till and Jesse Belvin are the two big examples in Sam Cooke's life of, like, the wrongs he has to right. Right. And so now cut to May 12th, 1961. They're in the Memphis City Auditorium. It's this big variety show. They're, like, 12 acts. Yeah. All, everyone who was on the tour. And now this is reversed. Now they will only let black people up in the balcony. Right. Not on the floor. So that they're farther away from the artists they want to see. Right. And so Sam Cooke is there, and he's like, I'm not fucking doing this. No. So he talks to all the artists gathered around, and they go back to the hotel, like, between the rehearsal and the show and in that time Sam gets them all to agree to not do the show that night to break on it one guy goes out for bourbon and takes a nap and everybody agreed yeah yeah Sam you're right you're right yeah we we with you man went back to the hotel I went to Beale Street first and got me some uh, bourbon (laughs) I laid down took a little nap Billy Davis. He's with us for the rest of this. And I, yeah. So Billy Davis is who's telling us this story. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, everyone was super psyched on the boycott. Right. We all chill out. He gets some bourbon, (laughs) takes a nap. And then he wakes up and he's like, well, we're not performing. Right. So he just like goes to Sam Cooke's room to hang out. And he sees that all the other artists in this motel are gone. They've all gone to the venue to do the show. Because they were terrified. Yeah. And it was a big risk and people were dying and being threatened. And I don't begrudge them that. Really, you and know, Sa- you know, he gets to Sam's room and Sam's like, yeah, fine, whatever. Fuck it. I'm not doing it. I'm the most famous one here and I'm not doing it. Right. And then we find out that the motel where they were staying at is the Lorraine Motel, which is the same motel where Martin Luther King would be murdered a few years later. It's I mean, yeah. Ugh. So here's the kind of power Sam Cooke had. Oh, my God. This story is amazing. Sam Cooke is so famous. That he hears about, at this point, Cassius Clay. And he's like reading about him in the in a it's magazine. It's a boxing magazine. And he thinks, he's like, I want to meet this guy. Has Cassius Clay summoned by his agent. He says to the guy. He said, all right, go get him. And what do you mean? He said, just tell him I sent you. <laughs> oh, my God. And the guy gets on a plane. This is amazing. Somehow finds out where Cassius Clay lives. Uh-huh. <laughs> Knocks on the door. Hi. And he goes, hi, so I'm from William Morris. And they're like, nope. Like, no, you know. Slam the we're, door. We're not buying what you're selling. Get out of here. <laughs> and he goes, all right. He goes, so I just yelled. Sam Kirk. And his mother said, let that boy in. My 
Muhammad Ali's mom opens the door and was like, you get in here right now. It's so great. You guys, what comes of this is so magnificent to watch. Yeah. Muhammad Ali gets on the plane, as he was told to do by Sam Cooke, right. goes and hangs out with him. They become best friends. They record a record. They record a record. This is Sam Cooke. As you can see, like me, he's awful pretty. <laughs> and we are here now working on a record called The Gang's All Here. You see these two guys. They're like girlfriends. Mm-hmm. They're sitting there giggling. They're laughing. They're Muhammad Ali is talking about like how beautiful Sam Cooke yeah. is. You see them like starting to sing together. And it's so fun. Hey, hey, the gang's all here. We're going to swing as one. Do it again now. Hey, the joy hey, that they brought out of each other and the laughter. Here. They were showing a range Join of emotions together. A kind of um, black male freedom, if you will. That was not really... <laughs> Something we saw a lot of at that time in America, you know. And they say, all of these talking heads say that, like, their public friendship completely broke the stereotype of what mainstream America thought of the male role for black men at the time. Right. They were having fun and being warm and open and affectionate and loving. And and that was really important for people to see. And they also just love each other so much. They are just having so much fun together. Right. It was so fun to watch this part of the movie. I know. it It was really amazing. So, at this time... Cassius Clay is being very quietly mentored by Malcolm X. Yeah. So Malcolm X, if you don't know, was a very well-known black civil rights organizer and community leader. Mm-hmm. He was a pretty major player in, in getting the Nation of Islam into the civil rights movement, if exactly. I remember correctly. Yes. All of a sudden, Sam Cooke, who's friends with Muhammad Ali slash Cassius Clay, right. who's being mentored by Malcolm X, suddenly they're all hanging out. Right. And so they all kind of had the same message where it's like, why not us? Just like the civil rights movement was basically saying, why not us? I think Sam was saying the same thing as an entrepreneur, as a black businessman. Why not us? And so now these three powerful men have come together and they're really vocal and they're all over the television and all over the newspaper and doing all of these like live performances, so to speak, all of them. Yeah. And now people are like, "Mm, all these pioneers coming together, they're all black. Ooh, this is pretty powerful and a little (laughs) dangerous. And so Sam Cooke starts his own record company. Right. So he starts Star Records with J.W. Alexander and they start this publishing company and this record label and it was really important and threatening because Sam Cooke was going to do right by everyone. Right. And he was going to give black artists a platform and a voice and he was going to pay them what they were worth. Because the thing is, and this happened in the 60s, it still happens now, but like artists are never really given any money for the work that they do, especially black artists, pioneers of jazz, people who started jazz and rock and roll would get $25 and now they have the biggest hits in the world and they have no money to show for it. Right. Artists who didn't really make anything for their music. Feels like sharecropping where you do all the work, you do the labor, it's your creativity, your energy. And then someone else reaps the benefits of it. So this guy, Alan Klein, keep keep him in mind. Oh my God, this guy, Alan Klein needs his own documentary. Right. Alan Klein comes in and he's like, look, I know what's happening. This is really horrible. Sam yeah. Coke is with RCA Records. So he's like, let's look at the books over at RCA. Make sure you're getting what you deserve. Right. Alan Klein was an accountant in New York. Klein had overheard conversations about Sam's dissatisfaction with receiving royalty payments from RCA. So Alan Klein... Artist RCA Victor and comes up with a bunch of money for Sam. 
So he takes him on and this guy becomes his manager. We'll get back to that in a second. Right. So you guys, February 25th, 1964, Cassius Clay slash Muhammad Ali is up to be like the heavyweight champion of the world. Yeah, against Liston. It's a big deal. They did a whole Mad Men episode about it. Go watch it. It's called The Suitcase. It's one of the best. So assembled are Jim Brown, who's like a major fancy football player, Mm -hmm. Sam Cooke, his best friend, and Malcolm X. So Clay wins. While he's being interviewed, like his victory interview, he's like, yeah, yeah, enough about me. Do you guys know about Sam Cooke? And starts like being Sam Cooke's hype man. He calls Sam Cooke into the fray. At that moment, Clay's yelling at the sports writers, telling them that I told you, I told you, he's pointing fingers. And he yells out, Sam Cooke. Sam Cook's the greatest. Come on, Sam. Come up here. Hey, let that man up here. Let's stay on me. This is the right, Sam. And so he's got his arm around Sam Cook, and he's just telling the world, and everybody is watching, right. how amazing Sam Cook is. Yeah, and it turns out there were informants all around these people. That blackmail energy that Sam Cook possessed, that Malcolm X possessed, that Cassius Clay possessed, unfortunately for some people in power in this country, represented a threat that had to be stopped. And that's why informants were all around those folks. And little did we know that one year after that, both Sam Cooke and Malcolm X would be dead. The FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, were terrified of black men breaking into the mainstream. And it's happening right in front of America's eyes. And Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X were being, like, tailed by the FBI. Right. So because they were being monitored and they were friends with Sam Cooke, now Sam Cooke was in all this paperwork. Exactly. And again, we don't know what this means necessarily. We just know that eventually Sam Cooke is murdered and there's a lot of conspiracy theories about it. Right. Um, girl, can we talk about Zelda Sands? You mean Sam Cooke's office manager? Yes, I love her. You guys, Zelda Sands is this, like, older woman. She looks like a cross between, like, Sophia Loren, Pat Fields. Yes, Pat Fields, totally. She looks like this older woman. She's got this, like, fiery red hair. She's wearing this, like, I want to say it's, like, a zippy sweater, but it looks like it cost $10 million. She's the best. She's got a ton of stories. Diane von Furstenberg. She looks like her, too. Yes, yeah. Oh, my God, yes, absolutely. She looks like all these rich, fancy old women. Yeah. Back in the day, she was Sam Cooke's office manager. Right. Sam really wanted to build an empire. He felt he could do it, and he was not afraid to do it. Because now what's happening is that Sam Cooke is reaching out to all of his famous fancy friends and saying, let's pull our money together and make a record label, a booking agency, Uh a publishing house. Like, let's really change the music industry. Let's get more black artists out there. Like, we can really do something. A change is going to come. Like, that famous song of his. Yeah. And so he just was an entrepreneur. This guy just always had great ideas. So now this is very problematic for people. They're worried about him. Because Uh the thing is, the mob loves the record industry. So even Sammy Davis Jr. was like, look, Sam Cooke, you should not mess with the mob. (laughs) And he's like, I know this because of Frank Sinatra. Like, do not mess with the mobs. When Sammy Davis Jr. calls you and says, you in danger, girl. Right. You fucking listen. Because the mob's like, hey, yo, I don't think it would be a real shame if something happened to your... music business and Sammy's like listen to these guys dude they'll break your legs they'll kill you and your family like don't mess with these guys so the thing is Sam Cook's like but I want to do something good but not only that they come to see him in his dressing room before a show so they were like Sam look here we hear you trying to start a music union of your own and we want you to leave that alone he's like well fuck all y'all you know I don't give a damn about that shit hell I'm gonna I'm gonna do what I want to do Right. And he's like, fuck you, get the fuck out of here. I'm going to do whatever the fuck I want. 
Right. I'm Sam Goddamn Cook. Don't you know who I am? Right. And they're like, actually, could you sign this for my daughter? Like, they, like that's how like everyone was horrible. So now it's time to renegotiate his contract with RCA. So remember Alan Klein? You guys, again, I'm telling you, who's making the documentary about this guy? Uh, not me. Yeah. So Garbage. I- he was the guy that came to the rescue to be like, hey, I know a guy who knows a guy who can make sure that you're getting like a good deal out of your record contract. Right. So now he's his manager like a right. year or two later or whatever. And so they land on this idea that they'd make their own company and then lease the material to RCA because he wanted to get out of this contract. He's like, I'm going to make this like awesome like publishing house and booking yeah. agency and so that's the deal and Alan Klein is the guy who's like I'm gonna take care of all of this for you I have your back you can trust me I knew that people weren't looking out for you do you guys think this is gonna go badly this is horrible <laughs> how it was explained to Sam was that this would be a venture where Sam would own the company own the rights to the recorded materials be in charge in the studio which is something he really wanted who wouldn't sign this? Right. Because Sam Cooke is working his ass off and not taking care of himself and is sad. He gets the flu and is bedridden. And being the smart businessman that he is, he's like, I'm not going to just lie here. I'm going to like look at my paperwork while I can't get out of bed. And he realizes that what's really happening is that Alan goddamn Klein is really the owner of Tracy Limited and has screwed Sam Cooke out of everything. You know I am one flu away from being bedridden and looking at our paperwork <laughs> and seeing that Stephen Lee Tipton owns the shit out of True Crime Obsessed and you and I are his employees. Yes, because that's exactly what happened. Sam yeah. Cooke, Sam Cooke, Sam Cook, I want to stand up. I Sam <laughs> Cooke is now an employee of this piece of shit, Alan Klein. I know. Can, what? How did he think this was going to happen like this? I mean... So Sam Cooke makes this realization on a Thursday. Yeah, and we start to hear the story from Sam Cooke's like great nephew or something like that. Somebody in the Cooke family line who's like written this book about this right, or whatever. Right. And he's saying like... That Thursday, he had proclaimed that he was going to fly to New York Monday and make a whole lot of changes, including uh, firing Alan Klein. But uh, he never made it through the weekend. In case we forget to say this, you guys, this guy, Alan Klein, would go on to do this exact same thing to the Rolling Stones, and then he is credited as being one of the driving forces that broke up the Beatles. Did you love that shade, though? That's a little Yoko shade. Like, one oh, I, of the driving forces that broke up the Beatles. And you see Yoko in the in little the photo, corner in the yeah. photo when they say that. Because he's in the photo with the Beatles, and everyone looks miserable. How is it possible that we don't know more about this person? I don't know, but I hate him. God I damn know. it, but I hate him. <laughs> So now Sam Cooke, who just had the flu and is going to New York on Monday to fire his manager and get his life in order, decides to just go out for a night on the town with Al, his engineer, (laughs) who we love, and Al's wife at the time, Joan. Sam and I had talked earlier in the day and we were going to meet for dinner at Martoni's, which was a big music hangout on Coinga. I brought my wife at the time, Joan, with me. Sam had a few martinis. He's liked his martinis and uh, You guys, we see modern day Joan. Joan and Al are no longer married. Joan is insisting on being in this documentary because she's got shit to say. Right. Because she's again let the women do the work. Like exactly. she, she knows what's up. We learn right away that Sam loves his martinis and yeah, it he makes likes, me feel closer to him. He likes gin martinis because yeah. they say earlier that he likes beef eaters. That's right. Yeah. So he likes gin martinis and he's just knocking them back and he starts taking out like a wad of money. Cause they were they're talking about making a blues record and he just takes out like five thousand dollars in cash that he has and he's like look look at look at what I like this is what I did today like this is what I can earn this is what I can do and the thing is he was drunk he was sad he was angry he was in mourning he he was going through a lot Sam Cook can wave as much money as he wants I don't give I a shit I guess so but $5,000 in cash in his po- that must be a little uncomfortable to just have with you at least can I ask you a question what is that $5,000 in your pocket or are you just happy to see me oh god <laughs> no dad <laughs> 
just my phone. We're getting this story from the wife. What's her name? Joan. Joan is amazing. She's like, Sam, girl, put that shit They're away. Both like, can you not wave your money around, please? Like, you're a target anyway. Like, can you stop it? Right. So they go home. Al yeah. and Joan go home. <laughs> They're like, it's 11 o'clock. You have had the flu for five weeks. Remember how you have to, like, like take your business into your own hands on Monday? Right. <laughs> Just go to sleep. And he's like... Well, there's a nice looking lady at the bar. I'm going to like keep the party going. So they leave. He goes. The last time they see him is at the bar with this woman. Right. <laughs> then all of a sudden. The look on your face. Then we just get audio of this police call, which is the fakest thing I've ever heard in my life. This like totally put on voice. I mean, you guys just listen to it. Number is Seven nine nine eight four. That's a telephone booth I'm at. Uh huh. Well, what street are you on? <laughs> I don't know. What's your problem there? Well, I I was kidnapped. You were kidnapped? Right. But you have no idea where you're at? Um, no, it's pretty dark here. All right, can you stay right there in the phone booth? Right. I'll I'll find out where you are. You stay right where you're at. I will. Okay. Bye. What is your name? This 911 call, not since the imposter episode one, have I heard a faker 911 call. Right, because she says she's kidnapped. She doesn't know where she is. Right. She hangs up before she can say her name. The best that she's was like, totally calm. There's also like, wait, she's, I literally have this super calm lady just got kidnapped. And the cop like forgot to ask her where she was. Well, because she didn't know where she was, but she gives like the number on the payphone. Uh huh. So uh-huh. he's like, all right. And, and I'm like, how do they do this without computers? Like, how do they find? <laughs> I know. Do they have just like a, like a bunch of like ledgers? with like <laughs> numbers of they tel- phone do, actually. like seriously so then they're like wait like what's your name and she's like i don't i'm f- <laughs> i'm fine this is a hoax like or whatever she said she's an idiot so now suddenly like just like sam cook's rise to fame like this all happens really fast right and suddenly al the engineer is woken up with a phone call at like five in the morning sam cook has been shot yeah and we're just like wait to connect the dots we got this crazy lady on the phone mm-hmm. who then hangs up and now sam cook is shot these are connected somehow right so now news is just like wildfire yeah sam cook is shot so joan because she's an expert because she's a woman right. just goes down to the police station in la and it's just like i need to know what's happening with yeah. sam cook so for some reason in la in this little pocket of la these stupid cops didn't know the most famous man in the world right because they're like why are we getting calls like from london town about the sam cook person isn't it just and then they say a horrible thing about how it's just like another black guy dead who cares right joan has words for this the death sergeant said what is going on here we We've had calls from everywhere. We even had a phone call from London. Who the hell is Sam Cook? Just another N-word killed in Watts. What is the big deal? So I told him he was a fucking idiot. This is the whole reason Joan is in this. Can she get a hero bell? Yes. This hero is bell the whole Joan. reason she's here is for this line. And the way that she says it and then like raises her eyebrows like what? Yeah. What? Like, are you idiot? Right. The official story is that Sam goes out on the night of December 10th and meets a woman named Lisa Boyer at that fancy pants restaurant where he was waving the $5,000 around. Yeah. They leave together and go to the Hacienda Motel. Right. So remember, Sam has been known to be cheating on his wife. Obviously, he's picking this woman up and they go to like a cheap by the hour motel. So then we get Lisa testifying on the stand with a hair scarf and sunglasses (laughs) on like a caricature. If you came to the Pride show, you'll remember us talking about how the cops at one point dressed in drag to try to entrap gay men. That's what she looked like. This is exactly, she looks like a cop in drag trying to like entrap a gay man. Take your sunglasses off when you're inside. And when you're on the goddamn stand. A little respect. Yeah. (laughs) So she's on the stand and she's telling us. And he dragged me into that room. I started talking very loudly and I told him, please take me home. He latched the night latch on and um, he pushed me on the bed. 
And he says, well, we're just going to talk. I knew that he was about to rape me. So while he was in the bathroom, I picked up my clothes, my shoes, and my handbag. I opened the latch, and I ran out. She was like, oh, please let me go. Please let me go home. And she's like, I knew he was about to rape me. That's when he went into the bathroom and left me alone in the room. With all of his clothes on the floor. And then that's when she was like, okay, I was unrestrained. Even though he was beating her up and like forcing her to be there. He gets up, goes into the bathroom, leaves her alone. And she has enough time to grab all of her stuff, including his pants, (laughs) and runs out the door. And so Sam, according to the official story, comes out of the bathroom and just assumes that she's gone to the hotel manager's apartment. And starts like pounding and like trying to break the door down of the hotel manager like screaming about where she is and then kicks the door down. So I assumed the hotel manager was going to be a man. It wasn't. No. It was a woman named Bertha Franklin and she is here to tell her story. Also no relation to Aretha I don't think. (laughs) We don't know for sure but we're assuming. This is the third Franklin and two of them are related. I'm just saying like... So we hear her story where she is saying that he broke the door down, he grabbed me, she says she tried to bite him. I don't know who says it, but I don't know if it's the lawyer or a cop or whatever, but someone's like, you tried to bite Mr. Sam Cook? Is that what you're telling me? You tried to bite him? And she's like, well, yeah. So then she goes, I was in such fear for my life because Sam Cook was in such a blind rage that she shoots him three times they ask her did you know you shot him and she says yes because he said lady you shot me I'm laughing because this story is absolutely not Does what happened. Does anyone seriously believe this? I have I have two whole lines of question marks. I just kept hitting it out right. of rage. I was like, question, like, what is happening? Who believes this shit? Yeah, and then we are just hearing from all the talking heads who knew Sam so well. Like, this is not him. So out of character. Right. There's absolutely no way. We also learned from them that this Lisa Boyer person yeah. was their words. <laughs> so you better play it so they don't come for me. It's their words. It turns out that she was a hooker and she was a Hollywood hooker. And remember how Sam had like taken out that $5,000 in cash at the restaurant? I was like waving it around the bar. And so this woman like knew that he had that cash in his pants. Right. We see Zelda, the office manager again, you know, that fancy older lady. Yeah. She says that it's her knowledge that Bertha, the, the manager, manager, is with the mob. She calls her a pimp ass. Yeah. Did and you I was hear like- that? And rumor had it that Bertha was in with the mob. That she was like a pimpess or something. She was like a pimpess or something? <laughs> I was like, Zelda! A pimpess! A pimpess. So she thinks that like Lisa took the $5,000 and like threw it out the window to her pimp downstairs. Right. But Bertha was connected to the mob somehow. The thing is, Sam's death is ruled a justifiable homicide. No one believes this, not even Elvis. Elvis. Right. <laughs> Elvis Presley, hound dog Elvis. Right. It's just like, no, no, no. Elvis believed that. There was a sense in the music industry that that Sam was getting too powerful and had to be stopped, which echoed what a lot of people in the black community thought. You know, that this was about a black man who didn't know his place and to stop him, he had to be murdered. You know, we're told eventually that like there was no in-depth investigation. So we'll never really know what happened. Right. But there's all of these conspiracy theories out there festering because he was so powerful. Mm-hmm. He was starting his own business that was a threat to these huge record companies. He was friends with Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X. And they were black men that white people were accepting into their homes and into right. the mainstream. And black men were listening to Sam Cooke. So if Sam Cooke says like, this isn't right, we have to change things. That's right. too 
powerful. He had too powerful of a voice. Yeah, and there's all of these conspiracy theories. Like somebody says Alan Klein, the manager yeah, guy, yeah. that he did it, but everyone's like, he wasn't powerful enough yet. Yeah, and he's then, too much of a derp. Right, and then if you remember, like J. Edgar Hoover was like, the FBI was following Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X, and Sam Cooke had gotten mixed up in that. Yeah. There's that conspiracy theory. And then we learn, like, it's not a conspiracy theory, but it's just a fact that just broke my heart. It's that his wife, Barbara, sold all of Sam Cooke's music after he died for $50,000. Yeah. It's priceless. It's worth millions upon millions upon millions of dollars, and she sold it for 50 grand. Because she was probably desperate for the cash. Of course. And it's so sad. It's just heartbreaking. And, you know, somebody says this thing. One of the talking heads says, like, you know, so much was lost with his death. Mm -hmm. And he says, you know, it's something that white America will never fully understand, is that not only did we lose him as a person. What we know is that we never got to see him as a fully mature artist and thinker and activist who, had he lived, would have had a dramatic impact on the next generation of artists, thinkers, and activists. Right. He was an artist, a revolutionary. He was somebody that people listened to. He was powerful. And it was a real substantial loss to culture to lose him. Right. And they were saying, like, you know, if it was today, they would be saying, you know, Black Lives Matter. And, yeah. and someone says that in 1964, like, even Sam Cooke's life didn't matter. Yeah. And it ends. So all through the documentary, we've been hearing that the, the song Change is going to come. Mm -hmm. And it's one of his most famous songs. It's such a famous song. And we find out that that song wasn't released until after his death. And the thing that just really stuck out to me at the end was one of one of the talking heads saying that the song wasn't released until after his death. It was so poignant then. It was so timely. It was so right. And it is the shame of the nation that that song should still be so relevant. Yeah. And we end on it. And the last line of the documentary, as we're hearing this beautiful song that like, if you don't feel anything listening to change is going to come, then get the hell out of here. <laughs> Something is dead within you. Get out. Um, <laughs> And they're listening to it, and it's exactly how the movie started, right? Just listening to it and feeling this. And someone says, like, Yes, it will. The change is going to come. Like, the change hasn't happened yet. Right. And we end on this note of, like, what are we doing here? Right. Like, we, the change has to come. Yeah. Oh, God. Mm. <laughs> and that's it. And that's it. <laughs> Girl, I loved that documentary. I did too. I think it's like required viewing, truly. Like, I yeah. think it's a history lesson and it's just, it's so important and the soundtrack is great. I learned so much. I have all this new music I'm going to be listening to all the time now. Yeah, and it's going to make you really ragey and it's going to make you want to go out and do some good things. So go out and do some good things. Yeah. Uh, speaking of good things to go out and do, come see us live, you guys. Okay, that's comparable. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> Toronto in September, Brooklyn in October with Maggie and Lance and the boys. We're talking about Maura Murray. Mm -hmm. It's going to be amazing. Those tickets mm -hmm. are going really fast. Come see us. I'm going to say it again. I've said it before. If you've never seen us live, it's a whole other side of the podcast it you is. need to get to know. It's uh, it's something. All right. <laughs> it sure is something. Don't forget the Patreon, you guys. There's over 90 episodes to binge right away. Don't forget the what? The Pates. There you go. Get in the Pates, there you, you guys. Go. Lorena, Making a Murderer, The Staircase, Serial, The uh, Disappears of Madeline McCann. Oh, yeah, that's right. The Casey Anthony one. And you guys, the next one that we're doing, the ESPN 30 for 30 doc OJ Made in America. It's a five-part series. They're really, really long, you guys. Um, <laughs> and the 30 for 30 series is just excellent. Like, yeah. all their documentaries are good. Yeah. So That's where we got the Nancy and Tanya Harding one. 
Yes. They're all so great. We're both obsessed with this podcast, the Confronting O.J. Simpson podcast. Kim Goldman is a superhero. We've been tweeting with her. Yes. So we both are are really obsessed with this. So I'm really looking forward to diving into this next. Yeah. And if you guys like Ragey Jillian, (laughs) Ragey Jillian will be here. I've never talked about myself in the third person. I hated that. I'm sorry, but I am full of rage about the O.J. Simpson case. So here we go. Girl, our next episode on the regular feed is our 100th episode. Congratulations. Oh, congrats. Um, Tell the people what we're doing. You guys, we're doing our first episode all over again, The Imposter. Our very first episode was of The Imposter. It's super quiet Uh and calm. That was back when our podcast was supposed to be something completely different. Mm -hmm. And we are redoing it. And (laughs) someone got the wheels off the goddamn thing. And here we are. Sorry about that, everybody. Uh, I couldn't be happier. I can't wait to do it again. We are going to laugh and scream. It's going to be hilarious. Well, and here's what we're not going to do. I'm not going to listen to our podcast. Yep, same. The original episode. We're not listening to it ahead of time. My notes are long gone, deleted and whatever. I'm not going to read them. And I'm only going to watch it like while I take the notes. Because sometimes I'll watch it just like to see like how I'm going to take notes on this thing. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. We're going to go in as cold as we possibly can. I cannot wait. Girl, where can they find us? TrueCrimeObsessed.com. At TrueCrimeObsessed on Twitter. And TrueCrimeObsessed podcast on Instagram. Yeah, they can find you at Jillian with a G on all the things. <laughs> Where do they find me? At Patrick Hines on Twitter and at Patrick Hines underscore on Instagram. <laughs> you guys stay tuned for the trailer for The Imposter. Oh my God. Oh wow. And then our uh, amazing and hilarious outtakes. Tam, 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 Tam. And our palate cleanser. We'll figure it out when we get there. Okay. We love you. We love you. All right, bye. Bye. Hello. We found a kid here. He's about 14, 15 years old. The thought of what somebody could have done to him, it gives you nightmares. He doesn't have no ID, no documents on it. He's very scared. As long as I remember, I wanted to be someone else. We had no idea what kind of person we were getting. He had changed so much. There was just something wrong about it. I have in my notes here, I actually wrote this out. If I'm being honest, I'm not a fan of corpses. No. (laughs) Mm -mm. I'm not a fan of corpses. Agreed. They look so dead. I'm not saying that the people who dress up the dead bodies don't work very hard. I'm sure that they do. We need those people. We do. We really need them. Does he love or hate that scene from My Best Friend's Wedding where they do uh, Say a Little Prayer? I don't know. Because I feel like if you love Dionne Warwick, you either love that scene or you hate it like how dare they. So I'm Steve, let me know. Text me. The difference is that I know who Jessica Simpson is. I think I'm in love. I loved that song. You loved Jessica Simpson? That one song I was really into. Boy, I think I'm in love with you. Oh, that was her. That's yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you guys, February 28th, 
What is payola? Payola is when they would pay DJs and radio stations to play albums and get oh. them more publicity, but they wouldn't act like they were being paid That's for That's like it. that scene from Dreamgirls. Exactly. I know exactly what you're talking about because of a musical. Right. The Say mob. payola again. Payola. <laughs> payola, that's my track name. 